Hi, everyone. I'm John Strasner. And I'm Berta Alexander. And this is Break Some Dishes, an Imagine a Place production. We're here because we realize that sometimes to get something done, you've got to start by breaking stuff up. We talk with scientists, artists, activists, educators, adventurers, and of course, designers who are doing incredible things to save our planet. Verda is a designer and I'm a talker. So we want to share these amazing conversations with you in the hopes that you'll be as inspired and excited by them as we are. And you'll start breaking some dishes of your own. There's no time to lose. So welcome to Break Some Dishes. It's so funny. I was telling our friend Doug Shapiro that we were going to be talking to you today. And, you know, every time I tell somebody about you, I have to say it's pucker. It's pucker. Important. You don't want to put an H after that P. No, you do not. And I, I wanted to ask you if growing up with the last name pucker, if that was tough during recess. (laughs) So, you know, my aspiration from when I was probably five years old to maybe 21 was to be a professional hockey player and having the last name Pucker all the way through and playing mm-hmm. in college and getting interviewed, people would ask me, is that, is that your real name? So it was not oh, a bad thing. Nice. That's way to flip it. Way to flip it. Hockey I, 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 didn't, I didn't make it, but I did aspire, but you know, I, but look, I'll show you one thing, which you'll like, cause it'll be entertain you. This is my, I'm in my office. Can you see that wall? Yeah. yeah. So Ooh. what you're looking at is uh, four on the bottom African masks, West West African, yeah, and, which I love African art. And on the top, you see four 1970s professional hockey goalie masks. Oh. And I buy these at auction. And if you knew what I paid, I don't tell my wife because I mean it wouldn't <laughs> go well. Uh, <laughs> these are sweaty old 50 year old oh. men's hockey masks that I pay money for. Oh my goodness! <laughs> they give me such pleasure. That's insane. Well, they're they're evil looking, you know. They they're are maniacal. So, yeah, they remind me to stay in line. You know, Ken. It's it's and and I'm I just want to introduce you quickly to our listeners. You are an advisory director at Berkshire Partners, but you write articles for the Harvard Business Review. I've read your articles in the Stanford Social. Uh, innovation review. I'm sure there's other publications that have picked up your work as well. I am a huge fan. I started thinking about fashion and how horrible the fashion industry is for the environment and uh, how much fashion goes into landfills. And and so that's how I stumbled uh, upon one of your articles where you were writing about you know how sustainable is sustainable fashion. And you were a COO of uh, Timberland for quite a while, seven or eight years. So you've got a, a good wealth of knowledge in that area. And so Verda and I were talking before this podcast about, oh my God, there's so much that we can talk about with you to, you know, to get us started on the right foot. We've always talked about this thing that I call the holy trinity of activism, Ken. It's regulation, it's community involvement, and it's corporate accountability. And it's sort of, you know, really got us thinking, you know, do we, do we take everything for granted that companies tell us? And I think one of the fascinating things that you talk about, Ken, is the sustainability reporting and how horribly flawed it is, which 
first time I read that, I was really disappointed. <laughs> well, you've, you've talked to great people. You're focusing, though, on but one of the uh, challenges related to corporate accountability, and that is corporate social responsibility reporting. This opportunity or challenge dates back really almost a quarter century. The Exxon Valdez spill happened and a spinoff from Ceres, which is a Boston-based NGO. Uh, a couple of people started an NGO called GRI, the Global Reporting Initiative. In 1997 and 99, they issued standards. And their hope was that if companies were able to report on non-financial metrics, things like water usage and CO2 emissions and factory audits and eutrophication and things like that, and there was visibility and transparency around that, investors, consumers would be able to pressure companies to do the right thing, and companies would compete in a good way to enhance their non-financial reporting or their, their impacts their social environmental impacts. Lots of reporting standards later, there's SASB, there's TCFD, there's a whole bunch of other competing standards. But the good news is, if you just read an article in Bloomberg or in Financial Times, you'd say it's worked really well. If you look at publicly traded companies, for example, in the United States, more than 90% of them now file annually a corporate social responsibility report. And so you think, okay, that's good. We now have a little bit more corporate accountability. But when you begin to peel back the onion just a little bit, you, you should really probably get concerned. So first of all, filing a report is not a proxy for progress. It's just filing a report. The report may say that things have actually gotten worse in terms of environmental or social impact, right? But yeah. because they don't get the same attention as a financial report does, and because they're not audited typically, less than 10% of them are audited, and because it's voluntary and companies can choose what base year they want to use, what standards they want to use, and because they don't have to fill these out, they're incomplete, you begin to think, wait a minute, what good is this reporting doing? And I'll give you one concrete example, though there are many. If you were to take carbon emissions, which is the principal contributor to greenhouse gas growth and climate change, which I would view as existential. It's one of our challenges, but it's existential. We're 25 years in again in reporting. And I don't mean to get too wonky, but the right way to report carbon is using a standard called the greenhouse gas protocol, which is what is the norm. And the greenhouse gas protocol breaks up emissions into three categories, scope one, scope two, and scope three. Right. Scope one emissions, are your direct emissions, your driving to work, et cetera. Scope two, are your purchased electricity. So you can look at your, your bill and find out, you know, where's the primary energy coming from? Was it nuclear? Was it coal? Was it oil, et cetera? And then you can backtrack and figure out what the emissions are associated with that. Scope three is everything else. It's 15 categories. It's upstream and downstream emissions. For yeah. most companies, scope three is the biggest portion of their emissions profile. Is it like 90% in, in, in It depends on the industry. I worked at Timberland, okay. as you mentioned. In fashion, it's probably on average 95% of a company's profile. And, in, and they can't really measure it. Well, in utilities, for example, it's, it's much lower percentage because they have much higher scope two emissions. But if you're looking at a category like fashion or footwear and apparel, scope three emissions represent the vast majority of emissions. And because supply chains are so distributed, 
and they're outsourced and the product lines turn over so quickly and companies use multiple suppliers for the same item. And because tracking emissions is very difficult because oftentimes companies are sharing factories, it's extraordinarily difficult to get to anything close to precision on scope three emissions. And so more than 50% of the companies that I just mentioned that are reporting publicly do not report on their scope three emissions. Do you think that sometimes they use an agreed upon formula that people say, well, this is sort of what you got? That would be okay in my view, meaning I'd I'd take an 80-20 estimation Oh, as opposed okay. to nothing, right? Yeah. But and there are there are there are estimating tools right now that can get you to kind of ninety percent precision. And there is pressure now building for more discrete mandatory reporting of these things. The SEC, for example, just came out two weeks ago with a proposed regulation that would force public companies in the United States to report on their scope one and scope two emissions. And for industries where scope three is impactful, they would also have to report on their scope three emissions. Or if companies made net zero commitments or commitments to science-based targets initiative, they would be required to report on scope three emissions. And so that's, I think, a step very much in the right direction. But remember, this is 25 years from when we started this reporting. And in that period of time, global CO2 emissions have gone up by more than 50%. So if you think we're making progress because 90% of companies, public companies report, well, not so much. And mind you, mind you, I'm only talking about public companies. There are many more private companies than there are public. Oh my Mm -hmm. God. Yeah. Yeah. And the number of companies, the number of companies reporting has increased exponentially. And the assumption was that if we do this, the environment will will improve. And there were even some people that were so naive as to say that it's simply the way that business is going to be done eventually, because people are going to start reporting it and there'll be a, this transparency, but it doesn't work that way at all. The problem is that this reporting has no teeth. It does point out a fallacy, I think, which is considered common wisdom that you've heard the expression, you can't measure what you can't manage what you can't measure or you manage what you measure. Right. Well, in this case, we're not really measuring that well. And even when we do measure, there's no guarantee that these non-financial measures are being managed. So we need to do two things. We need to measure better and we need to regulate. I don't even think that's sufficient. Okay. Those are good. (laughs) Those are good interim steps, meaning we need to make it mandatory. We need to have it be audited. We need scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions. Then all you get is numbers, right? So we now know, okay, that Boeing emits this much CO2 or Timberland emits this much CO2. And remember, the theory of the case was once you have that data, consumers and investors will pressure companies to do the right thing. Well, I don't think consumers are going to pressure companies to do the right thing. They're busy, okay? And they don't understand necessarily what metric tons of CO2 are and whether a company has a factory or outsources. It gets really complicated. And so I think to expect consumers to pressure companies, we should know by now is a a bridge too far. The, The other one is, well, will investors do it? Because there's all this research now that says... If companies are good, sustainability companies, they generate higher returns. But if that's true, then investors should pressure companies to lower their footprints, right? Right. Maybe on the margin, maybe it's number 10 on their list. But number one through nine on investors' lists are traditional things. They're 
did your company grow? Does it make money? What does your go forward order book look like? What does your uh, management team look like? What's your innovation pipeline look like? Those are things that are going to drive future cash flows. And yes, CO2 is on the list because it's likely to be regulated and likely to be priced. Okay, but until it is, it's lower on the list. So when I said measurement matters and reporting matters, yes, what matters more is pricing, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Then people pay attention, right? If I told you you had to pay $100 per uh, metric ton of CO2 emitted, Mm -hmm. you'd probably as a company think, hmm, is there a different way for me to get the primary energy I need? Maybe I could use renewable energy. There's lots of ways to get it done, but until it's priced, our Mm. system doesn't work too well. You know what? I totally agree. And it's sad, but that's the case. And, you know, you put in one of your articles, a a great quote here that's from Patagonia's founder. And he's, he's no longer optimistic about corporate accountability. He said that it's all growth, growth, growth. And that's what's destroying the planet. The ultimate problem is that that we're focused on profit. And unless constrained by counterforces, the inner mechanisms of profit, competition, and accumulation, which constitute capitalism's DNA, are, are going to continue. It's like companies almost can't do the right thing. So back to Yvonne Chouinard, who's the founder, and he and his wife are the sole owners of Patagonia. It's interesting that he's criticizing growth, right? Because it's his company. And five years ago, Patagonia was about a $200 million company. And Yvonne came out and said, we're done growing. You know, the world doesn't need another fleece jacket, right? (laughs) And yet today they're over a billion dollars. Credit to them. They've done a brilliant job and they're an authentic pioneer, and inventor when it comes to sustainable practice, probably the best company in the world or certainly one of them. And yet this is a private company, 100% owned by a husband and wife, and they too felt compelled to grow aggressively. And so we have to ask, okay, what Mm. is it about the system that incentivizes that kind of behavior? On the point of capitalism, I'm not anti-capitalist. I just think capitalism needs boundaries and rules. And Mm. when circumstances Mm -hmm. change, we need to change the rules. Mm-hmm. Think about this. If you go back to when I was born in uh, the 1960s, a pack of cigarettes cost about 25 cents. And I just looked this up. 42% of the U.S. population smoked. Today, a pack of cigarettes average. It's different by different geographies because of tax rules. But average, I think, is $6 nationally. So it's increased substantially. And 14% of the population smoked. So if you want to change behavior, right, we have tools, but we have to use them. Yeah. Yeah. But I just feel like getting a carbon tax or something like that implemented is going to be such a challenge. It doesn't have to be a carbon tax. Okay. There's a great PhD professor on the West Coast named Leah Stokes, who was deeply involved in putting together the Build Back Better plan that the Biden administration tried to pass and came within one vote of passing. And the environmental program did not include a carbon tax. Okay, Mm. what it did have was a clean energy standard. And it had carrots and sticks to push utilities to convert from coal and oil use to renewables. Yeah, that's fine. Meaning it doesn't have to be done through a tax. There's other ways to get where we want to get. 
It's just we have to create the incentives to make that happen. So other ways to get to pricing. Other ways to favor, yes, renewables over uh, traditional fossil fuels. But, you know, there's good news really here, which is that in 90 percent of the world, 91 percent of the world, places in the world, it's now cheaper to install renewable energy, wind and solar than fossil fuels, traditional fossil fuels. So forget incentives. Just the flywheel of capitalism will Mm -hmm. dramatically accelerate installation of renewable energy now because it's cheaper. Okay, mm-hmm. then traditional fossil fuels, even without any carbon tax or incentives. And so that's great. And in places like India and China and the US, we're going to accelerate adoption of renewables. The problem is we have to accelerate a lot faster in order right, to yeah. have a chance of keeping below two degrees Celsius. Well, I do think one, one of the issues is growth. Is there any way, and I think, to incentivize not just the right kind of growth, but for lack of a better word, degrowth, let's say, where maybe we could look at businesses adopting a circular model. I think, as I mentioned, Patagonia is a paragon. They have a program called Warnware, okay, where you can sell back your Patagonia stuff to them and they will then resell it. They also do have repair facilities in the event that a jacket or pair of pants needs mending. But that represents less than 1% of their revenue. So while you're excited about it, and while it's cool, <laughs> okay, it's tiny. Yeah. And all of the conversation about circularity, which is a cool concept, is really overblown, unfortunately. And the reason is, think about it for a category you know well, which is plastic and single-use plastic bottles, oh, right? Oh, boy. We've had a conversation about recycling in this country for probably 30 or 40 years. Less than 10% of all single-use plastic bottles are currently recycled. We don't have the infrastructure or incentives to make it happen. And so if you don't know what to do with your Coke bottle when you're done with it, and there's no recycling bin, and there's no incentive of five cents to return the bottle, and there's no infrastructure to, to pay for that, that's challenging. And then if virgin plastic costs less than recycled plastic, companies aren't going to use the recycled plastic. And so this notion of circular has a a, uh, lure intellectually. Has it slowed our progress? There's real evidence that the plastic industry has tried to put the onus on the consumer to solve this problem via recycling. Right. And there's evidence that, you know, they know that's not working and they're not paying for the infrastructure to support it. And so we just continue to produce more and more plastics. And if you look at the capital investments that oil companies are making in the United States now, based on a future of plastics growth, okay, they're not counting on uh, a circular economy saving the day. Wow. Yeah. And uh, just to give you a little bit of background too, Ken, you know, Verda and I are really in the, in the design industry where a lot of the manufacturers they're you know, we rely on the manufacturers in the design industry. And these are manufacturers that are making office furniture, residential furniture. You know, we're relying on them to start doing the right thing and addressing these issues that we're talking about. But you're right. It's like Patagonia. You know, what are you going to do? You're going to tell them that they shouldn't be growing anymore because, 
you know, they go into an office building, they pull all the old furniture out, they throw it away or they give it away or they try to resell it and they put new stuff in. I'm sympathetic. If yeah. you said to me as COO, you know, your job is to make stuff much better, but a lot less of it, right? I'd say, okay, that's a different set of guideposts than the one I'm reporting every 90 days to Wall Street about. Mm, yeah, yeah. So, well, uh, so if circularity isn't the blue pill, uh, how can we change the rules of the road? Well, I think regulation is one way we can change the rules of the road. If you forget, we, it doesn't have to be pricing carbon, but you know, there, you've got to create, use the tools that we have to incentivize the right things and disincentivize others. So, for example, globally, we collectively, humanity, provides more subsidies to the fossil fuel industry than we do the, the renewable industry. And it gets back to what Auden talks about, which is, you know, our companies aligning their lobbying efforts with what the world needs, right? And so, for example, yep. the business roundtable, which represents $9 trillion of revenue of about 200 companies in the United States. You'll find Apple, Walmart, GE, all big companies represented on the business roundtable. They reissued a purpose statement two years ago. Their prior purpose statement said the purpose of a company is essentially to deliver for its shareholders. And then two years ago, they came out with this statement that reflected a shift in zeitgeist from what, you know, shareholder primacy to a stakeholder model. And what they said is, no, 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 the purpose of a company is to deliver for its employees, its customers, its suppliers, its communities, the environment, and its shareholders. In that order, shareholders was last. Okay. And you thought, wow, um, this is big news. Sounds good. It ran front page New York Times. Andrew Ross Sorkin participated in a very cool podcast on The Daily talking about, is this a zeitgeist shift? What does this mean? How are things going to change? And yet, you know, a study just came out by two professors at Harvard Law looking at, okay, two years later, what changed? And they right. looked at, okay, proxy resolutions that shareholders brought up at these business roundtable companies. There were 40 of them in the two years asking to incorporate that language, for example, in their governance structures. Management didn't support one of the 40 resolutions. And they gave other examples of business as usual, essentially. Mm. So notwithstanding the fact that they came out and said, we're all of a sudden for purpose that's more balanced, not much has changed. And where Auden goes is he says, okay, let's look at these same companies and see which ones of them are lobbying against mm -hmm. legislation in support of climate change. So, for example, Biden's Build Back Better agenda contained, you know, a lot of money. I think it was over $500 billion aimed at climate. Mm -hmm. And many of these companies, including the business roundtable itself, came mm -hmm. out against the legislation. They said, we like the part of the legislation that addresses climate, but because the legislation raises taxes, we don't support it. And they lobbied actively against it. Wow. Gosh. Blows my mind. Auden says, you know, I love this quote, measurement and reporting have become ends to themselves instead of a means to improve environmental or social outcomes. And this is the kicker. It's as if a person committed to a diet and fanatically started counting calories, but continue to eat the same number of Twinkies and cheeseburgers. <laughs> That's, an, that's a so quote from in the article that I wrote in uh, HBR about confusing reporting with impact. 
And I think what he's right, you know, reporting isn't an end to itself. Ken, talk to us a little bit about this, because um, here's another amazing quote. Another amazing quote, Harvard professor Rebecca Henderson, and this is from your article in the Stanford Social Innovation Review, Harvard professor Rebecca Henderson expresses the plan concisely. Accountants hold the key to the salvation of civilization. That (laughs) blows my mind. I can tell you where she's going with that. First of all, Rebecca Henderson's an incredibly capable, talented woman. She was my professor at business school and is a prodigious writer in the space and cares deeply about these outcomes. What she's talking about there, I think, is that there's a new wave called impact valuation or impact accounting that I think is really as the fifth wave of a movement called corporate voluntary action. So the first wave was kind of companies like Timberland jumping in, Unilever, Patagonia, Interface, Natura, saying, look, companies can be forces for good. Wall Street wasn't terribly interested in that message. When we talked about our justice agenda on our earnings calls at Timberland, we didn't get any questions about that part of the agenda, right? Then came the reporting movement, which we've talked about. After the reporting movement, or these are all building on top of each other. One doesn't go away when the other comes along. There was this movement called Creating Shared Value which was a guy at Harvard named Michael Porter, who literally wrote the book on corporate strategy. And then one of the most downloaded articles ever at HBR was called Creating Shared Value. The thesis of that was, look, executives and companies, if you would just be more creative about searching for building environmental and social problems and address them, you can do so both for welfare of the planet and for profit. Look at healthcare, look at education, look at women's empowerment, all these issues, you can come up with solutions and make money. Okay. That was the third step in the corporate voluntary kind of theory of change. The fourth is this ESG movement, which if we have time, I'm happy to talk about, which stands for environmental, social, and governance. And that is the investment world thinking, catching on 20 years later and saying, hey, wait a minute, maybe companies that do do well can do good. And there's a relationship between companies, you know, Uh, improving their non-financial performance and improving their environmental social footprint and their financial results. And if there is, we have a win-win. Let's all invest behind these companies. That's the fourth movement. We're right in the middle of that. The next wave that's coming is this movement that Rebecca was talking about, which is impact accounting. And that's a movement that says, well, what we really need is a separate P&L, not not just a traditional one, but a one next to it that looks at all the externalities or all the side effects that companies cause, social ones, good ones, like they employ people, they pay taxes, they train labor. That's all good. Let's price that. And then let's also price all the bad stuff. Emit CO2 emissions, emit pollution, use too much water, employ underage children in factories, whatever. Let's price everything. Let's dollarize it all. Then let's compare it to their net income, their traditional measure, and come up with a measurement of impact. Some of it's economic, some of it's social, some of it's planetary. And then at the end of the day, we can say Boeing made $2 billion of economic profit, but they subtracted this much money in, let's say, planetary profit or social profit. And Mm -hmm. it's a very attractive idea intellectually, because 
you know, their thesis is, well, if we could see that, then again, investors could pressure companies yeah. to reduce their negative impacts. Yeah, you have a dollar for dollar comparison. The article that we wrote, I wrote with a colleague named Andy King in Stanford Social Innovation Review is called Heroic Accounting. And it makes a case that this is actually not possible and dangerous. So uh, <laughs> while it sounds intellectually interesting, and I think it is okay. intellectually interesting, it's yeah. not possible for a series of reasons. First of all, sustainability is a system construct. It's not a static construct. And what mm -hmm. I mean by that is the same company that's running a, let's say, a gas peaker plant for energy in Iceland would be a negative because Iceland runs on 100% renewables. Right. If you put right. that gas peaker plant in New England, it might be a good thing because it could reduce use of coal. So we have the same company running the same plant. In one case, it's good. In one case, it's bad. Right. So it's complicated. Sustainability measurement has to be at the marginal level, not the absolute level. It's it's a it's a it's a system construct. Number one. Number two is who gets to decide how to price all these things? Mm. Who gets to decide what a, uh, a gallon of water is worth in Bangladesh versus in Des Moines? Yeah. Right. There's no democratically appointed body to do that. And right now, for example, a metric ton of carbon is priced anywhere from $2 to $225. You can buy it on exchanges, literally for that variance. Yeah. So what's the number? The third part is to get to these dollarized assessments, you have to do an amazing amount of estimation, interpolation, extrapolation. You have to prove, for example, how much is the obesity that's caused by drinking carbonated soft drinks costing the world? Yeah, right. and then apply that on your balance sheet. To get that, you need <laughs> an amazing amount of data from wildly well, different sources, right? Ha haven't a lot of these impact accountants already been hired, like PwC? PwC just announced they're hiring 100,000 impact accountants over the next five years. How My concern is, look, if you want to try to value the negative externalities or positive externalities of a company go for it. If you want to do it as an investor, right, to figure out, well, is it likely with a carbon tax, this company's p is going to be impacted? I think that's a smart thing to do as an investor. But as a tool to solve social and environmental problems, again, it's relying on voluntary corporate action. It is, just like, isn't it? Other, yeah. just like these other four things were, you know, doing well yeah. and doing good, reporting, creating shared value, ESG investing, you know, we know it's getting worse, not better in terms of planetary boundaries and in terms yeah. of economic inequality. We don't yeah. need these, you know, fancy tools to solve these problems. We just need to, you know, have the courage to do it. Yeah. Wow. What do you think real quick about carbon offsets, Ken? You just mentioned a minute ago how varied they are in price, but is that something, you know, is it a get out of jail free card for corporations that aren't really literally reducing their footprint or is it funding an effort somewhere else and, and helping? So corporate offsets are a tricky beast. I think companies need to do everything in their power to limit their own emissions prior to pursuing offsets. But if they've gotten to a place where literally they're out of ideas and they funded everything they can to reduce their footprint, I think offsets can be a fine tool. The problem is it's a bit the Wild West right now. Offsets need to consider permanence, meaning so if you do... Uh, if you fund a project in Brazil to reforest the Amazon, what if someone comes back five years later and cuts down those trees? Okay, mm -hmm. so do we get the benefit from that offset? No, they have to be verified. They have to be additional. There's this concept of additionality, meaning would the work have happened without the offset? 
If the answer is no, then the offset's not useful, right? And so the good news is there's lots of work going on to try to create a market and address these challenges. But as of right now, a lot of what companies are buying to claim they're carbon neutral, a lot of these offsets are not good. More than half, I think, are not good, not verified, not additional, not efficient, not permanent. But over time, I do think they'll become a tighter market, and I do think it ultimately can be a good thing. It's just not great right now. Can we talk about ESGs a little bit? So ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. It is a, just a different acronym. What the corporate world called CSR, corporate social responsibility, the investment world called ESG. And now, interestingly, the corporate world is adopting that moniker as well. So ESG is the flip side. It's the investment side of CSR. Okay. And Great it's explanation. Not, it's not monolithic. Okay. So there are lots of things that impact investing, for example, which I think is very good. Oftentimes, philanthropy large family offices are investing in projects, aren't seeking a financial return. They're seeking an environmental or social return. I think that's fantastic. There's a category called climate tech investing, which is venture money that's going against solutions that we need. Things like battery storage and renewable energy, EVs, new modes of mobility, ag tech. Fantastic. Okay. I think these are really good. They represent those two categories, probably $2 trillion of a market of ESG that's considered around 35 trillion, right? Mm -hmm. So the minority, the whole investment world, professional investment world on the equity side is close to 100 trillion. So the, the climate tech and the impact side are both cool, but the rest of what's classified as ESG I worry about. And that's yeah. things like negative screen. So that would mean a, an asset manager would create a fund, Vanguard would create a fund that says, hey, look, Here's a fund you can invest in. It's the same as the S&P 500, but we don't invest in gun manufacturers or we don't mm. invest in fossil fuel or whatever the thing is that you don't want to invest in. Right, it's, right. it's called a negative screen. You're screening out a category. Okay. Right. That's a bit, that's about half the ESG investment. I'm not against it. That's fine. But don't say that so doing is going to solve the world's problem. Someone else is going to buy that fossil fuel stock. Someone else is going to buy the gun manufacturer. So it's yeah, a yeah. you can do it. Go ahead. Have fun. But it's not going to solve social environmental challenges. The next biggest category of ESG investing is called ESG integration, which means the asset manager is looking at risks that could hit a company's P&L from outside non-financial factors, climate change. What if your factory's in the way of a storm path that's more likely now? What if you're a farmer and it's more likely drought's going to cause your crops to have wild variability, right? That's what the ESG integrators are looking at. They're looking at fundamental risks that are coming from the globe, environmental, social factors. That's fine too, right? All, by all means, as an investor, you should be looking at those things. But again, that's not going to solve social environmental challenges. Yeah. So ESG investing, fine. The challenges with it are threefold. One is ESG funds are really oftentimes traditional funds cloaked as something else, you know, mm. different binder, right. uh, and they charge fees that are on average 40% higher. And didn't somebody find that a majority of the funds still have investments in, fossil, in the fossil fuel industry? Well, so if it's a negative screen that excludes fossil fuels, it won't. But all the others certainly can, and most yeah. do because they are behaving much like uh, traditional funds, 
but with a different you know, book binder. They have higher fees, which is fine or not fine. People can make their own decisions about where to invest. I'm less concerned about that. I'm more concerned about the fact that they create in that goodness is happening and that we're beginning to solve or trying to use investment to solve social environmental challenges. When in fact, in some yeah. cases, yes, impact funds, climate tech, but in most cases, no. That's my yeah. fear that we're going to say, well, companies don't need regulation. Look, they're doing the right thing yeah. on their own, right? Yeah. The way I yeah. say it is this, you know, would you ask an electrician who's rewiring your kitchen to cook you a gourmet meal? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and the answer right. is right. no, yeah. probably not. He's probably or she's not trained to cook a gourmet meal. I mean, right. he's great for fixing my lighting. But right. that's like asking an investor to solve planetary challenges. They're good investors. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, just like yeah. an electrician's a good investor. They're not bad people or anything. They're, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. But yeah. to expect that they're going to save the planet or cook you a gourmet meal, I think that's dangerous. They're not going to. Yeah. Wow. You talk about corporate dichotomy that exists. So you, you write a, a little bit about Nestle. Like Nestle's good because of this, but then – the bad side of Nestle kind of gets ignored. Nike is good for this reason, but we ignore the flip side of Nike. And, you know, is there no perfect company right now? Well, I think most companies have good and bad impacts, right? It's really hard to find, you know, any company that makes stuff that's extractive and then, you know, the product ends up in landfill not having any impact. You know, almost yeah. definitionally, there's going to be some impact. But there's varying degrees of attempts to ameliorate those impacts. Nike, for example, I think is a really good company. I mean, and I think though they came to the journey of sustainability from a pretty tough place, from real challenges and labor issues in Indonesia and Vietnam and their factories in the late 90s, they over a 20-year period have really, really done a, I think, pretty leadership job of going from compliance to efficiency to system efficiency to great product innovation and then collaborations, you know, leadership if, collaborations to yeah. try to address these problems, which can't be addressed by one. You know, I'd love to bring this all back to our industry. So interior design, I'm a corporate designer. I do workplace design and, you know, we work with manufacturers of carpet, furniture, ceiling tiles, walls, all of that good stuff acoustical materials. And we've learned in the last few years that our impact as interior designers could be even greater than the impact of the architectural building, the embodied carbon in, an, in a building, because there's so much turnover in leases, right? So we're designing a space that might last five years, might last 10 years, but the carpet is made to last 100 years. But 99% of the time, it goes to the landfill. We do. We actually talked to somebody on our podcast who lobbied against her own carpet company in California and got a passed a bill where 25% of carpet in California needs to be recycled. And I mean, it hurt them to some extent, but they saw the value and the importance in that. But I think California is still the only state, this was several years ago, is still the only state that legislates anything like that. What can either designers be doing or manufacturers of products in the interior design world be doing to to move the needle a little bit more so two thoughts one is i'm inspired by the work of the carpet manufacturer interface that's and them yeah what they've done over time ray anderson who was their ceo years ago committed to what he called mount sustainability and decided he would transform the company from 
what he referred to himself as a corporate sinner to someone who was actually not taking and plundering from the planet. I mean, you know this better than most, but, you know, carpeting is also made oftentimes of fossil fuels. And so Interface, I think, has done a brilliant job of lowering their own emissions profile and then also trying in some cases to convert their business model from a model where you sell carpet, it gets ripped out, it gets replaced to become more of a service where you're selling a square foot or a square yard of carpeting, right, that you then service over time and can recycle. And so I think that's leadership and pretty brilliant. The law you talked about in California is uh, known as extended producer responsibility legislation, EPR legislation. It comes from Scandinavia and it's actually catching on, which I think is a really good thing. What it says is you, Mr. Manufacturer of carpeting or of chairs, you are responsible for it from inception, cradle to cradle. You have to take it back at the end of its life. And if you think about that as a designer, if you know that going in, maybe you make different design choices. So, for example, could it become a benefit as opposed to a burden? Like think about the, your printer company, laser printers, you know, and they, you, you buy the cartridge from Brother. Mm-hmm. And they give you the box and a label that says, when you're done, we'll pay. Send this back to us, right? We're going to reuse it. And you think, that's cool. I'm doing my part environmentally. Well, from their perspective, they just improve their margins by 75% because they don't have to make the cartridge again. They just fill it with ink. Yeah. And we all win, right? Yeah. And yeah. so extended yeah. producer responsibility makes designers think differently about what their job is from the outset before they sketch. And companies have to think then about you know, upcycling parts of the products they're making. And it creates, I think, really good incentives. And so uh, what California is doing is spreading. Maine just passed a bill about this when it comes to plastic. There's other states that are looking into it in Europe. Europe just put out a new regulation for the fashion industry around circularity, which is another version of extended producer responsibility. This extended producer responsibility seems like a a component of circularity. And I know earlier on you were saying circularity is not the way to go. If you're forced as a company to, to, to get stuff back, then you you have to figure out with your competitors, perhaps, how can we set up shared recycling facilities, things like that. Right. And so again, you have to have the law or the rules change to get the kind of behavior we want. I think the challenge there is it's gotta, you gotta have local outposts. We, You've probably never heard of this company because they're just launching. They're called Heirloom. And their idea is that one way to keep things in the loop is to make them something that lasts for a long, long time over generations, something that you would want to keep that has either the style or the design and is built to last. These legacy furniture is what they call it. And they put a QR code on it and there's a story behind them. But the way that they're seeing this work is that they are partnering, like what you talked about, with other manufacturers to have local repair outputs so you can refurbish, re, re-manufacture so it looks new and comes back, but isn't shipped clear across the country. Yeah, there's but- a lot of examples of companies that are trying to do cool things like that. There's one called a women's uh, apparel company called Another Tomorrow, which is making beautiful, beautiful stuff that is heirloom like you're describing. Not inexpensive, but spectacular. And they have a refurbish and resale model. There's another company called Early Majority, which just launched in Europe, which is, again, aimed at women's outdoor wear. And it's a subscription model. There's a company in the U.S. called Unless Collective, which is an ex-Adidas guy who's using all bio-based materials. 
I mean, there's some really cool examples oh, wow. of companies trying to do the right thing. That's great. We need to support those companies. Absolutely. The one thing I'd point your attention to is a bill that's in the New York State Legislature called the New York Fashion Act. I've been working on this with a woman named Maxine Bedat, who's the author of a great book called Unraveled, which tracks the life cycle of a pair of jeans from start to finish, from West Texas to, I think, West Africa into a landfill. Oh. And the bill stipulates that any company that sells or chooses to sell in the state of New York with revenues over $100 million has to report annually publicly on its carbon footprint, scope one, two, and three, its water usage, its percentage recycled materials, its factory addresses, whether it pays people a living wage, all this information. And they have to sign up for what's called science-based targets, which is a non-combined five nonprofits created this organization called Science-Based Targets, which affirms that companies' plans and actions align with a future of less than one and a half degrees Celsius. So they have to cut their absolute carbon emissions by about four or five percent a year. Mm -hmm. And they they've got to do it not on their timeline when it's convenient and reasonable, but on the IPCC timeline from the correct. Uh, Paris Agreement. That's correct. awesome. And if they don't, they're fined two percent of revenue. So the consequences are large. That is right now being amended in the legislature of the state of New York. And Will it ever pass? Hopefully makes its way to the governor's desk and gets signed. I think there's a good chance it passes. Really? Um, we chose to introduce this in New York as opposed to nationally for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. But think about the fact that New York is an economy or California or Florida is an economy is big enough that companies have to pay attention uh, to legislation, even if it's state driven as opposed to national. And so even if it doesn't pass in New York, six other states have reached out for the language. Okay? Oh, wow. and California so, included, I hope. I can't it? release the states, but six of them have, and there's some big right. ones. And so I'm optimistic that this kind of uh, legislative effort will lift the floor, will not just have uh, Patagonia be great or Aline Fisher be great, but force all companies to get a little bit better. And by virtue of forcing that change, assure the companies start to talk to each other to solve these problems jointly because they're too big, as I mentioned, for any single company to address. Great. Well, yeah, I'm going to definitely amazing. follow that bill. That is really exciting. And I'm so glad that we managed to steal you away for an hour today and 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 hear some of your thoughts. And I'll tell you, Verda, we're lucky that we have people like Ken out there. You know, you're peeling away layers. You're not taking anything at face value. And we need to listen to the kind of stuff you're saying, you know. I'm just trying to break some dishes. <laughs> you are. You are. Absolutely. You are a dish breaker, Ken. This you are. Thank an you. Amazing Officially. I will change my business cards. Again, dating myself. <laughs> well, well you know, yeah, yeah, it was a blast. Nice it to meet you both. Nice to hang out. Same yes, here. Indeed. Yeah. Thanks, hope Ken. To, hope right. Take care. If you've enjoyed today's episode, drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. To hear more trailblazers taking on the world's issues through the lens of design, visit us at BreakSomeDishes.com. I'm Verda Alexander. And I'm John Strasner. And you've been listening to Break Some Dishes.